Welcome to The Principled Podcast, brought to you by LRN. The Principled Podcast brings together the collective wisdom on ethics, business and compliance, transformative stories of leadership, and inspiring workplace culture. Listen in to discover valuable strategies from our community of business leaders and workplace changemakers. General Pete Schoomaker made a remark some years ago that's always stayed with me. He said, people like to think that life is an opera that unfolds over several acts, but it's really a rodeo. You never know what's coming out of the chute. So much of the ethics and compliance sphere clearly demonstrates the truth of the general's remarks, especially recently. LRN's last two program effectiveness reports focus specifically on the impact of the pandemic on ENC programs. Now we have the war with Russia in the Ukraine and increasingly fraught relationships with China. How is the geopolitical landscape changing the compliance landscape? Hello, and welcome to another episode of LRN's Principled Podcast. I'm your host, Susan Divers, Director of Thought Leadership and Best Practices at LRN. Today, I'm joined by Tom Fox, founder of the Compliance Podcast Network and aptly accredited voice of compliance. In addition to his 30-plus years of legal experience, Tom is the author of the award-winning FCPA Compliance and Ethics blog and the Complete Compliance Handbook, now in its third edition, which is by far the best source for best practices in one place about ENC programs. We're going to be talking about the impact of geopolitics on ethics and compliance and what issues should be top of mind for ENC leaders in the near future. Tom, welcome. Susan, thanks. I have wanted to be on this podcast for a long time. I particularly enjoyed your reference about rodeos because in the great state of Texas, that's a college sport, rodeoing. So uh, lots of uh, rodeos, and it's uh, certainly an apt metaphor for what we're going to talk about today. Well, great, Tom. And I really appreciate the opportunity to have any conversation with you, but particularly on the podcast. So Tom, first, generally, how do you see the ongoing war in the Ukraine as disrupting trade and the rules, both formal and informal, that have governed the world for the last 20 years? And is the World Economic Forum vision of trade now dead? Susan, the uh, in addition to the rodeo metaphor you gave us the most prescient comment I heard during the COVID-19 pandemic is that we've moved from disaster recovery to business interruption to, uh, excuse me, to business resiliency to business as usual. And literally now we can have a weather event, we can have an economic event, we can have a geopolitical event, we can have any event and the requirement of a company is how do you respond? How do you respond tomorrow? Have you planned for this? So I think the type of thing that we saw with the Russian invasion, as tragic as that was, it's one more. It's just an event. And we're going to talk about that in some detail. But every company has legal, ethical, and business obligations around that event. I was also particularly struck by your reference to the World Economic Forum. And when I read that, it put a frown on my face. 
And it put a frown on my face because the World Economic Forum, in my mind, has been one of the biggest leaders for the global economy. And uh, since at least 1990, when I started kind of paying attention to a global economic framework, because I was in the energy industry and began to think about these issues on a global basis, the World Economic Forum and their symposiums, their position papers, and really their raison d'etre was to talk about a global economy. And although I certainly thought we would have regional conflicts, as we have always had, I never thought we would, uh, I guess my hope was that the global economy would help drive us towards a more integrated global community and that we wouldn't be put near a brink again of a global conflict. I don't pretend to say that's where we're going in Ukraine, but when you start talking about tactical nuclear weapons, it's a conversation we haven't had in this country since the 60s with seriousness. So the World Economic Forum, the world they envision, the world you and I grew up in professionally, I think that world is gone. We're moving to something else. I use the Russian invasion of Ukraine really as an ending point or an exclamation mark on trends that we have seen percolating probably 10, five, three years that accelerated extraordinarily greatly in the COVID-19 pandemic up to the war in Ukraine. And the disruption that that has caused really impacts businesses. And uh, this is going to be something I think we're going to have to deal with literally on an ongoing basis forward. So lots really to unpack there. But I do have to acknowledge you for pointing out it was really the World Economic Forum that has led, I thought, the charge for a global economy and globalization. And unfortunately, I think that world is now dead. I hear you. And I feel the same way about the forum. Um, LRN participated in it quite actively until fairly recently. And the forum really did an excellent job of helping global leaders cooperate, frame some of the, the rules and the practices. And and um, maybe when the current situation resolves itself one way or another, there'll be an opportunity to do that again. Um, but getting a little bit more granular at this point, you've written about the impact of the Ukrainian war on the supply chain. And certainly for business, that's one area where the rubber really hits the road. Can you explain that a bit to our listeners? Sure. The Ukraine war, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, as I said, put an exclamation point on this. Uh, one of the key disruptions from COVID-19 was indeed supply chain. And here, I think for the first time, Susan, we started to look at geography as a risk. Geopolitical risk has been known for quite some time. But with the COVID-19, we have swaths of the world that were unavailable to us because of the pandemic. So as the pandemic raged through China and moved to India and moved to Africa, large parts of the global supply chain were literally shut down completely and they couldn't get back up, uh, get, couldn't get running again. So we saw from COVID-19 a geographic risk that we have perhaps not considered as, as much before. This is you know different than a an island that may worry about climate risk or flooding or fires in California or something like that. We had real geographic risk. 
the Ukraine war really put an exclamation mark on geopolitical risk. What is the risk? What was the risk in 2019 of Russia invading Ukraine? Certainly, there were discussions at the highest level of our government. Frankly, I don't think you and I, it wasn't on our radar. Maybe if you read foreign policy, it was on your radar. But for the business practitioner, from the compliance professional, I don't think we were thinking about a Russian invasion and, and what that might do to either our supply chain or business partners or customers. Well, now, if the Ukrainian grain cannot be put in the global food supply chain, that's a huge disruption. And the question that I thought about is, what would be the effect of the disruption of the global food chain on one of our former employers, AECOM, Halliburton, businesses that you and I have both been involved with, but we don't think of as having perhaps a food risk. Nevertheless, if grain is not available, what do those types of risks mean for employees in allegedly or apparently unrelated companies. So companies have to start thinking about these kinds of things in ways that we haven't done before. I did a podcast earlier this week where someone said, look, the issue now is China and Taiwan. And he was absolutely right. That could be a military issue, could be a geopolitical issue. 82% of U.S. semiconductors are made in Taiwan. That's a huge issue. Uh, Let's go back to our former employers who are now heavily invested in tech and actually use semiconductors as part of their manufacturing process. They're going to be impacted, let alone the U.S. semiconductor industry and the U.S. computer industry. So that is something now that we have to, to consider. Are there any other geopolitical conflicts that could erupt which might negatively impact our supply chains? And when I mean negatively, I mean you can't get your supplies out of those countries, whether it's a raw mineral, whether it's a a extractive mineral, uh, whatever it may be. And so those types of issues now are more front and center than they ever have been. From the business perspective, Susan, supply chains since at least the late 70s or early 80s, the primary goal was efficiency. That was generally uh, translated to just in time. And it was seen uh, because of you know, the experience in the 60s, where particularly in the auto industry, you had lengthy uh, supply chains and actually large number of parts piling up uh, in warehouses. That was deemed to be inefficient. They wanted it just before they needed it. That led to just in time. That led to one or two suppliers. And we found that sole suppliers or sole plus one suppliers has a risk. That risk is if they are in a geographic area that's wiped out by COVID, if they're in a geopolitical area that is no longer available to us, then we as a company have a problem with our supply chain. Certainly, there are many industries that have been offshored outside of the United States. From our industry and service, or rather service industry folks like us, to manufacturing, to everything in between, that is now trying to be reshored on American soil. Can we do it? Yes. Can we do it tomorrow? Probably not. Can we do it in time for Christmas? Probably not. Uh, We're going to have to retrain. We're going to have to retool. We may have to allow allow greater immigration to get people in to do those jobs. And it it brings up an entire series of questions. It brings up economic questions. How much more is it going to cost to reshore? How much more does it cost and pay 
an American wage as opposed to a Philippine, a Bangladeshi, or other wage, or you name the country outside the United States where the wages are disparate. So all of those issues are now in play in a way that certainly they were percolating around and percolating along in the second half of the last decade. COVID-19 accelerated those conversations, particularly around just-in-time and sole source suppliers. But now, I don't know how much of the globe Russia consists of. I think at one point it was 12%. That's not available to us as a supply chain partner now. And Russian partners are not available to us as supply chain partners. Now, what happens if China is not available to us as a supply chain partner or Taiwan because of an armed conflict with China? How is that going to play out? Or can we even get semiconductor chips out of Taiwan if, if they're in armed conflict with China? So all of these issues are now front and center. And I think every company has to be looking at their supply chain, who's in their supply chain. And then obviously this ties into things that were not deemed to be connected to all of these issues before, such as conflict minerals. Conflict minerals required you as a company to determine where any of the minerals you're buying, the four T's, I think, um, coming out of countries uh, primarily in Africa under conflict. This was the first time companies had really taken a deep dive, not to this their direct suppliers, but to their sub-suppliers. And they found out, we don't exactly know who all of our sub-suppliers are. Obviously, the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act is a, has huge impact on supply chains. And hopefully we can talk about that at some length in a little bit. But kind of all of these issues on supply chain, it's elevated the discussion of the corporate supply chain, I hope, to where it properly belongs in the board of directors level. But for the people that, that we deal with, the CCOs and compliance professionals, I think it's, it should be a part of an equal conversation. Because what are the risks, I was going to say implications, but what are the risks of moving your supply chain, reshoring it? It's a change, so the risks change. It may not be an FCPA risk because you may be in the United States, but almost every state in the U.S. has an anti-corruption law. I have a state anti-corruption law. I had to look at it one time. 37 states do. Uh, and that's not, that's not that you can't bribe our state government officials. Every state says that, but there's 37 with regular commercial, private-to-private anti-bribery laws. So when was the last time, you know, you as a compliance professional had to assess that issue, that risk? So lots of new risks, and you as a compliance professional need to be a part of those discussions so you can begin preparing your corporation for those eventualities. Well, that's a perfect example, or I should say it's an example on steroids of how you have to respond to the risks that face you today and to, and hopefully tomorrow, try to look around corners. I remember, I think it was in the 2020 guidance that DOJ put out, they said that you can't let your program be a snapshot in time or go on cruise control. And that's one of the biggest traps I see people fall into. They, you ask them what their risks are, and it's kind of like what the risks were last year. And with this environment and with what you just outlined in terms of supply chain, there's going to be a lot for compliance teams to do. And so how should people be addressing that right now? Uh, And I know we'll talk later about sanctions and anti-money laundering being the new FCPA, as Deputy Attorney General Monaco said recently, 
But what's your advice today in terms of how to think about those risks? So Susan, you hit it exactly on the head. Assess your risks when your business changed. You referenced the 2020 update to the evaluation of corporate compliance programs. That's where the first time the Department of Justice formally said it's not an annual risk assessment. It's not a biennial, all-encompassing $100,000 risk assessment. It's an assessment when your business changed. And the beauty of the timing of that statement, it was June 2020. Everyone's risk had changed because we were working from home. It didn't mean your risk increased or decreased. They changed. So how do you assess working from home or how did you assess working from home from a compliance perspective? Once you made that assessment and then you found there were actually new risks, then you had to put a risk mitigation strategy in place. Then you monitored that strategy to determine its effectiveness. And then you use that information to upgrade your compliance program. So the formula is in place for all of these things, but it starts with exactly what you said, Susan, assess your risks if your business has changed and everyone's business has changed, literally, uh, particularly in the supply chain. So you've got to know who your suppliers are. From the business perspective, you know, who can supply us is paramount. Pricing is going to be paramount. But from the compliance perspective, where are they getting those? If you're a clothing manufacturer, how many of your suppliers are coming out of Bangladesh? And how many of those suppliers are violating any sort of fair trade or human rights laws? Uh, even what's the safety, as we know from the uh, plaza collapse a few years back in Bangladesh? So you have to know who's in your supply chain to a level and degree that you didn't previously think about unless you were in conflict minerals. But the beauty of that is that if you make that assessment down into your sub-suppliers from your supply chain, you as a business will be stronger. You will see, number one, if there are inefficiencies in our supply chain, but two, if there's a disruption, you'll be able to mitigate that if a disruption occurs because you can move to another supplier because you know where the parts are coming in from and hopefully you'll be able to have prior knowledge or planning around that. But think of a weather event. So in 2021, I was living in Houston. It hit seven degrees. That was the first time we'd had single digit weather in Texas since 1890. So, well, we can't prepare for that. Yeah. And uh, this is a, a town that had gone through two 500-year floods and 1,000-year flood over the past 18 months. We had a wildfire north of Houston. We'd never had a wildfire in Houston, Texas in my lifetime. All of that's to say is that things have changed. I don't pretend to say I know which way it's going. I just know that you have to be there. You have to be have assessed those risks and have a plan in place if you can't utilize all the way down in your supply chain. But that gives you the opportunity to be more business efficient. And if a catastrophe does occur, you're more quickly able to respond. So it starts with a risk assessment, put a risk management strategy in place, monitor that strategy, and then improve your compliance program as information becomes available to you. I totally agree with that, Tom. And I want to relate it back a little bit to a point you raised earlier too, which is this gives you an opportunity to make sure that you're dealing with ethical 
sub suppliers uh, and that your whole supply chain um, meets spec. And I think I've seen in the past in my long years as an ethics and compliance lawyer, and before that as more of a specialist on FCPA, that a lot of times they, people don't know who their sub suppliers are. And the first they find out is when there's fraud or potential bribery issue uh, or diversion uh, or theft of intellectual property. So it does give you an opportunity to get a more solid grip on your suppliers and make sure that they are the right people that you're dealing with. So let's turn from that, which is, I think, a very good segue to the issue of economic sanctions. There's really been a quantum leap in that area. Even it was starting before Russia, I think, with the sanctions on Huawei and the heating up of tension in the U.S.-China relationship, but now it's on a completely different level. And that really, I think, has to be top of list for companies when they review their E&C programs. Can you talk about that and give us some guidance? Sure. So once again, Susan, let me use the Russian invasion as the exclamation mark, because under the Trump administration, we saw an exponential increase in the use of trade and economic sanctions. And I had several friends in that space, and every once in a while, I'd email them, well, we had three changes today. What do you expect this afternoon? The point being that the prior administration saw those as legitimate and important tools for U.S. national security. That has only increased now on steroids because of the Russian invasion. What the Trump administration's use of those tools did was it elevated the discussion of the trade compliance director in a corporation to the board of director level. It may have elevated them uh, within the compliance function or generally, you know, within the C-suite because people now had to call trade compliance and say, anything new today? Well, the sanctions that have come out after the Russian invasion have been all-encompassing. I looked before this podcast. I think we're on our seventh round of sanctions and more to come. That's seven rounds from the United States. That doesn't even count the UK and Western Europe, who have equally sanctioned Russia. So many multinational, US multinational companies are also subject to UK or EU trade sanction directives. So you need to be cognizant of those. But the current trade sanctions that have been levied, and, and when I say there's still more to come, we haven't even we haven't gotten to the nuclear option, which is secondary sanctions. If we get to secondary sanctions, that's an entire level of trade and economic sanctions, literally, that we have not seen since World War II. So discussion, though, around trade sanctions, and once again, I've talked to, to several of our colleagues who have that as their specific compliance remit and their specialization is, they now feel elevated within the corporation. They feel that the issues they've been dealing with their professional careers are now being discussed literally at the board of directors level because of these huge uh, potential fines and penalties, the huge visibility. And as important as these legal restrictions are, Susan, it's actually the reputational damage. Just think about the companies that either drug their feet about leaving Russia or were slow or 
less than somebody's idea of we need to be out of there. They were excoriated in the press for doing business in Russia after this invasion. Those conversations have largely gone uh, by the wayside because I think most U.S. companies are out of Russia now. But the reputational damage for the violation of of trade sanctions or even some sort of norm or standard now cost more than perhaps even the finer penalty would have cost. So it's really a huge change for our colleagues. It's an important change because now those issues are being evaluated together with supply chain at the board level in a way they have not been previously evaluated. And you may now need to look, you need to call your trade director of trade compliance about issues in your supply chain. You need to call your director of trade compliance about where are we doing business? How are we doing business? Who are we doing business with? Who's our customer base? Are we selling for, with commission sales agents, company employees, or distributors? If we're using distributors, are they reselling our products into Iran? Are they reselling our products into a country that's exporting to Russia? All of those issues now, I think, are being discussed at the highest level of a company. But for me, Susan, the real beauty of this discussion is, finally, I think the silos are coming down within a corporation. And you're seeing a much more holistic approach to many of these issues that we'd not seen previously. And once again, if I could go back to the DOJ's June 2020 update to the evaluation of corporate compliance programs as presaging all of this, they said in that document, compliance must have access to all data silos within a company because compliance needs to know what everyone's doing so compliance can do its job. Well, that turned out to be true, but it turned out to be true much broader. And so I think the DOJ was onto something when they said that. And I think now companies are realizing you have to have this holistic approach. Uh, Trade sanctions and export control sanctions are here to stay. The other insight from the Trump administration use of them and the Biden administration use of them is their administration agnostic. They're not going to go away. And if 2024, we have a Republican administration, they are um, probably going to continue those. And they're not going away. And if there's a Democratic administration, they're not going away. They're probably going to continue those. So sanctions, trade sanctions, export control sanctions are here to stay. They're probably going to get more robust. And until Russia pulls out of Ukraine, uh, I think companies have to take these very, very seriously, both for a potential legal finer penalty, but even more important is in the commerce or the business place of public opinion. I totally agree with everything you've said, and you've you've made a very articulate vision of what the a major challenge is for compliance teams. The only thing I would add is it's interesting to me that this can affect small and medium-sized companies that don't think in these terms and may not even really be very sophisticated. When I was looking a couple of months ago, I came across a case involving a false eyelash manufacturer who was importing what turned out to be false eyelashes that sourced in North Korea. I mean, the Chinese, it was a Chinese supplier, but the sub-supplier was North Korean, and they got in trouble. And as you know, it doesn't really matter if if you don't know. That's no defense. And they paid a fine for that. And it was a good uh, reminder 
that trade sanctions can affect everyone and that you really hopefully have to have that on your radar. Let's take an interesting topic off of this, which is have the impact, the enhanced sanctions started to really impact whistleblowers? I mean, we know that FCPA enforcement has certainly inspired a lot of whistleblowers, as well as SOX and other uh, areas such as that. But what about trade sanctions and what about AML and what we're seeing? You know, that's that's been, I don't want to say it was an unintended consequence, but one of the most interesting outcomes or aspects of the Russian invasion. For the first probably 30 days, the most ubiquitous picture of the Russian invasion was a yacht steaming away because it was a Russian oligarch's yacht, and they were trying to steam to a port where the U.S. couldn't come in and forfeit them uh, because of trade sanctions and sanctions put on the Russian oligarchs. But here's what happened. In, on January 1 of 2021, U.S. Congress overrode President Trump's veto of the National Defense Authorization Act. In that bill, there was something called the AML Law of 2020. The AML Law of 2020 was the first update to our anti-money laundering laws and trade sanctions laws since the Patriot Act passed in the wake of 9-11. As part of that change, a bounty program for whistleblowers was put in place, similar to the SEC bounty program put in place in Dodd-Frank. And that Department of Treasury money laundering or anti-money laundering bounty program applies to those Russian yachts. Because if a yacht is seized and sold, the person who reported it can be eligible for up to 30% of the proceeds of that sale. This created an entire cottage industry of marine yacht hunters. Who knew? And they are working with law firms to actively, and when they find one in a port that the U.S. can get jurisdiction over, these law firms notify the DOJ, and then the DOJ does whatever they need to do to try to get seizure of that yacht in a foreign country. And that was viewed as hugely popular, and the American public you know, was cheering them on in a way whistleblowers have never been cheered on in our lifetimes. I remember I interviewed uh, a woman whose law firm specializes in whistleblowing, and, and I said sort of in an offhand manner, are you telling me now whistleblowing sexy? And her response was, you mean it hasn't always been that way? And no, it hadn't. But now it was seen as directly in the interest of the United States, particularly our national security, for these whistleblowers to come forward. And as important as whistleblowing is to the SEC, I don't think it had ever been considered a national security issue. That ties to what the Department of Treasury has announced publicly, that they they expect U.S. corporations to be in on the fight of trade and economic sanctions and money laundering by self-reporting. And I had had a little trouble tying self-reporting of your own violation to the fight against national security. But what the Treasury Department argued was, come to us, tell us if you find people within your organization violating trade sanctions or economic sanctions, and we'll give you credit for that. That may be a declination, you know, up to and including a declination. So the DOT has truly tried to incentivize companies to be a part of this fight. And that is 
now the same for whistleblowing. Whistleblowers are now seen. Uh, there's one other uh, document called the U.S. Strategy on Combating Corruption, which came out in January, excuse me, December 2020. In that, December 2021, in that document, the Biden administration pointed to whistleblowers as a component of the fight against bribery and corruption, which that document elevated to national security status. So now we have whistleblowers who, before the Russian invasion, certainly were a part of the legal landscape and part of the compliance landscape, but now they're being told, you are a part of our national security interest and you are a part of our national security fight. And if you bring us this information in the form of blowing the whistle, you will be rewarded. And the U.S. public is saying, you go. You go find those yachts. You go find those people who are doing business with those that are not in the national security interest of the United States. And we'll support that. So that's, in my mind, just a huge psychological change. And I know you have written and said more about whistleblowing and how to treat whistleblowers than about anybody. And I know this is something that you've been talking about for a long, long time, but I really see this as a true shift in the way whistleblowers are thought of in the United States. Well, I'm glad you brought that point out because I think that's true. And tying it furthermore to the impact of corruption on national security, I think is an idea whose time has come. And we're going to do a whole other podcast on that as part of this series. So I won't get into it a lot, but the concept of corruption as a victimless crime has been around as long as I've been practicing, which is a long time. And it's not a victimless crime. I don't need to convince you, but it basically corrodes good governance. It corrodes social structures. It makes it harder for the poor. I mean, if I can go bribe my way, get a MRI ahead of everybody else in some less developed country, I'm jeopardizing the other people who can't afford that in that country. And I'm also corroding ethics and good governance, but it hasn't been seen that way in the past, either by the government really, or in the corporate community. And so we'll get into that more in the next podcast, but that's fascinating to tie the whistleblowing into that. And, and it, you know, it has the additional benefit of being true, if you will. And, I have to say, I love the image of the yacht hunters. Um, it's one of the first things I read when I open the Wall Street Journal in the morning to see if there's some oligarch yacht that's being towed away or whatever. But uh, it's definitely an idea whose time has come. And for those of you who think are ever new ideas, I think if you look back in history, that was called piracy and, and or <laughs> uh, sh- raiding well, by English. Letters of Mark. Yes, exactly. Letters of Mark. So it's an old concept, but it's uh, equally valid today. Well, let's close off this session because we're going to do another podcast and talk more about anti-corruption and sustainability. But one of the things I was curious about is how does all of this tie in to the level of transparency that we're seeing in international trade and commerce? Our chairman of the board, Dub Seidman, whom I I know you know of um, and know, um, has written a lot in the past about radical transparency. And how does that tie into what we've been talking about? 
Susan, let me go back to 2015 and the Volkswagen emission testing scandal. And I read a speech by the head of the German Manufacturers Council. So the German trade group for manufacturers. And in that speech, he said, the answer is compliance and transparency. One, be in compliance, but two, be transparent about it. That is how we, as a German industry, will get through this. Volkswagen has done what they've done. We can't stop that or do anything about that. But we, the rest of German manufacturing, can be in compliance and can be transparent about that compliance. And that really struck me at the time, and it's stuck with me since then. And so the transparency, the radical transparency that Dove talks about is even more important in 2022 because of things like the business roundtable statement on the purpose of a corporation. How many stakeholders are there now? Previously, there have been only shareholders, but now you have multiple stakeholders. It could be your employees. It can be your third parties. It can be those localities where you do business. And that's where that radical transparency is so critical because they may not own shares and they may not be able to vote, but they can vote with their pocketbook. And the radical transparency allows you to demonstrate to stakeholders who are going to vote with their pocketbook that we do business ethically and we are in compliance and that you can and you should do business with us because our values are what your values are. And that's, to me, the power of radical transparency. And it's the ability to demonstrate to those who are not regulators. Because remember, if you're fined for a regulatory violation, that's seen as a below-the-line sunk cost, just a cost of doing business. Tell me how much my fine is, and I can reserve for it, whatever it is. What I cannot reserve for is if 5, 10, 25, or 50% of my customer base chooses not to buy my products because I've been found to have violated sanctions or I've been found to have used Uyghur labor in products I sourced out of China or you name the issue, that's not a bottom line cost. That's a top of the line cost. That's a cost you can never get back because you can't reserve for non-sales. It's a cost you can't anticipate, you can't reserve for, you can't mitigate the risk, because once you don't have sales, you don't have sales. And so to me, that concept of transparency, that concept of doing business ethically and compliance, and that concept of radical transparency all really protects you and allows you as a corporation to say, this is what we stand for. This is why we're proud to sell a product to you, and hopefully you're proud to buy a product from us. Well, you're right, and that really tees up the heart of sustainability. Sustainability isn't one giant checklist after another. It's what are we really doing and how are we doing it? And what you're also saying, too, is, and and it, it ties with things Dove said in the past, that we live in an age of radical transparency where anyone can go on Twitter, I guess, if they pay the $8 now, or post on Facebook or Instagram or wherever and expose concerns. And with the incredible increase in sanctions and money laundering controls, 
it's just a further reason, if anyone needed one, um, why you have to get your house in order and you have to make sure that you are dealing with those risks effectively. And of course, walk the walk as well as talk the talk. So we are running out of time, um, unfortunately, but I'm excited that to mention again that we're going to continue this conversation in an upcoming podcast. It's been such a pleasure having you today, and I know we could keep talking for another couple of hours, but we'll have further opportunities in the future. I always have way too much fun when you and I sit and chit-chat, whether it's over a lunch, a coffee, or a podcast. So thank you, Susan. Oh, I feel the same way, Tom. So my name is Susan Divers, and I want to thank you all for tuning in to the Principled Podcast by LRN. We hope you enjoyed this episode. The Principled Podcast is brought to you by LRN. At LRN, our mission is to inspire principled performance in global organizations by helping them foster winning ethical cultures rooted in sustainable values. Please visit us at LRN.com to learn more. And if you enjoyed this episode, subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen. And don't forget to leave us a review. 